Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Happy New Year. Today, uh, we've got an unusual show, and by unusual, I mean kind of a bit thrown together. Uh, we're throwing off our New Year's hangover, um, and my lone co-pilot today, uh, as always, is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. Happy New Year. It is good to be back at the mic after many long train trips. Um, I hope you had a more I mean, I had a relaxing holiday, but I save money on the train, and I forget how stressful the train can be because it's just so damn long. I hope you had a good holiday. Uh, I did. I did until the very the very end when uh, my parents' terrible guest bed, uh, which I think is meant for a child, really, uh, finally took its toll on my lower back, and uh, my last day at home was just just a nightmare. And then I had to drive uh, about fourteen hours back to Boston from Indiana, so that was that was a that was an experience, and I'm still uh, still dealing with the fallout from that. So it was um, it, it was a great trip. I, I would say it was a it was a solid week of being. Um, well, my parents are very Midwestern, and so it was a week of being fed lots of rich, fatty, ridiculous food, just one thing after another. I don't think I don't think I saw more than one green vegetable uh, on a <laughs> plate for about a solid week. So uh, there's there's a lot of catching up to do on a number of fronts. That sounds about right, par for the course for the holidays. I think. Yeah. I don't think anybody comes out of them eating completely <laughs> healthy. Uh, how far was your train trip? It's about 20 hours. Oh, God. I forget how enormous Canada is. Yeah, Canada's really, really big. Uh, to New Brunswick. Uh, it's just a, go to Montreal, then change trains in Montreal. So it's about 20, 21 hours in total. Yeah, um, uh, MK and I did the uh, Chicago to Boston train trip uh, like four years ago, I think, four or five years ago, to, to save money. And it was kind of a searing, scarring experience uh, <laughs> that led us to never try to do that again. Uh, it, you know, it, the trains are beautiful and romantic. Uh, you know, for the first six or so hours, you're on one, and then uh, you're, you're really ready for, it to, ready for it to be over, especially if you're not traveling in a private compartment. Yeah, the thousand dollars to fly to New Brunswick, though, is a pretty good argument in favor of the train. That that is a very that is a very powerful argument indeed. Um, but speaking of saving money, uh, one of the things <laughs> I want to talk about uh, today w- was just because I started compiling this uh, the, this list of war games for for PC games on, and I'll be trying to put together a list of, of good war games uh, that you can get really easily on PC right now. And I started just looking at some stuff I hadn't had a chance to take a look at uh, before and trying to compile a list. But one of the things I realized is that you know for all that we talk about like Steam sales and uh, you know the, the 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 circus of values that is the Steam sale, Steam itself is actually really bad at surfacing its back catalog. Right. Yes. It it tends to you know it's 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 the same games you've been seeing on sale since the summer um and each sale they're discounted a little more a little deeper uh but it, it's very much their their current hot games which i understand the logic behind that but it also means that you, you don't really it's very easy to forget how many games there are on steam and how many things that are probably up your alley that are you know a few years old and selling for next to nothing that you just never see uh that you never even think to look up and so i, I spent a good portion of uh, a good portion of my break sort of plumbing the depths of of steam and and, and grabbing these uh you know th- these random ridiculously cheap titles and I, and i figured it was a good time to just you know talk about some of the uh, the hidden bargains of steam and uh, just some of the the value gaming we did uh, on our break cuz i don't know about you but i spent a, a solid week there stuck on a um an okay laptop but not not a gaming rig by any means so i was ve- i was very much more limited than i usually am so it was a good time to appreciate some older games some cheaper games well uh, tell me about them cuz i didn't have much chance for a lot of gaming at all beyond what was on my ipad because there's no internet at my mother's place so oh my lord yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. But, well, I, I, but I did get a, a, some gaming in before the break and uh, in the last week. So, yeah, let's talk a bit about things we've been playing that might not be worth a full show, but are, might be worth people checking out. Yeah, and I, I got to say, the um, let's, let's go to the, the, the game that sort of kicked me off on this topic, actually, is um, a game called Battlefleet 2, uh, which which I, I found for like $6. Um and it looks, and it was, it was sort of the pleasant surprise of my break because it's mm-hmm. one of those games that you're looking at it, looking at it on sale, and it kind of looks like a cheapo budget 
bargain bin disaster. It, it, it's kind of the the first impression. Like the graphics were okay, but it just looked it looked so simple. Uh, it just it, it seemed like the the odds of this game being good uh, were very poor. And especially once I started playing it, I realized it's, it's actually sort of a um, scorched earth worms style game where it's partly about World War II naval combat, but really it's about like you know aiming your gun picking the range value you're going to shoot for and then trial and error using trial and error until you start hitting the target very very dead simple kind of stuff um and you know at first it was just kind of a you know vague i was just wasting a few minutes uh hanging out in my in my mother's kitchen but it became sort of a minor obsession uh, over the yeah. break. I ended up sinking a ton of time into it, and uh, you know, for, for for all its simplicity, it's actually a pretty decent casual naval war game. Yeah, I'm interested to hear you defend this because I put a few, I put a little bit of time into Battlefleet, not a whole lot. Um, I mean, it's it is it is what it is. But the, the strategic layers got really not a lot to it. I found, and man, the whole. Guess the range of your gun. Oh, they've moved. Time to guess again. Uh, sort of fun. Kind of distracted me from anything, that, any appeals. I'm interested to hear you explain what you found fun and valuable in Battlefleet 2. Well, let's face it. Like Being stuck at home for the holidays is a good time to appreciate the value of a solid time waster. Oh, like yes. I, I can't even pretend that that's not part of the equation here, right? Like there are certain times when you are totally in for a game that you're going to be half engaged with while carrying on conversations with family mm. and just sort of passing the hours until the next football game comes on, until the <laughs> next meal, that kind of thing. So, you know, I, 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 I doubt this is going to become a regular feature of my gaming time now that I'm back home. But, okay, so, yeah, it, it is... If you've played Scorched Earth or, or Worms, fundamentally the, the the test of skill is basically being able to eyeball the range to a target, and it has this huge huge uh, set of values you can enter for the range, and you shoot and you start arc your shot in, you start like trying to figure out how you're going to going to hit your target, and 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 if you're if you're a good shot, you have an advantage because you'll you'll land shots and the enemy won't, and, and you'll do more damage. Um, but for all of that, I also found that um, the World War II theme kind of helped it along, as did you're, you're, it's it's unlike unlike sort of a, a Worms game where the levels like this sort of two D puzzle uh, that you, you know you just sort of blasting away. And Worms is very much about just creating chaos. Um, it's it's a chaotic game. It's 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 a it's a total like blast of a party game. But this is a little more of a um, you know, it, it, it's it's like it's like worms for grognards, I guess I'd say. And I was surprised how often I found, uh, you know, naval tactics actually starting to matter, like being able to sort of figure out like how my formation was going to maneuver. Because a big part of this game is, you know, just like well, I mean, this is this is all naval war games, uh, and and so we'll get to this in a minute. But a, but a big part of this game is just being able to bring more guns to bear on the enemy. And sort of control the range, right? You can you can engage with more weapons, you can engage with heavier weapons while they're still trying to close and, and get in the distance. Uh, and I, I just I was surprised how much planning and thinking I was putting into sort of maneuvering my little fleets around and uh, engaging targets and figuring out like how I was going to uh, how I was going to take on these enemy fleets. It doesn't hurt that. Uh, the different ship classes have different weapons. Uh, you know all these different values. And being able to land your shots exactly where you want them uh, matters as well because you can do things like knock out turrets and such. So if you really want to get fancy, you can start trying to like snipe the bridge or you can try to snipe um, you know, a particular gun turret. So you know, put those things together, I was surprised how much uh, I, I found myself sort of really getting into the, the, the tactical combat. What about the strategic layer? Did you spend a lot of time on that or did you just go into the whole... Same way time in the skirmish uh, mode. The strategic layer was, uh, yeah, the strategic layer w was okay. It could have been better. And I think, so the way the strategic layer works is that um, you've, got a, you've got a map of the Pacific Theater, 
It's got all these little zones. You push your fleets around. If you move into a zone that's held by the enemy, but there's no fleet in it to defend it, you just automatically seize the territory and get extra production points that you can put toward more ships. Uh, so it's a very tug-of-war uh, type situation. Uh, the more territory you hold, the more you can churn out ships. But if you engage, if, if you go into a defended territory, then you have to fight a, a, a tactical battle. And uh, if you're fighting around like islands and such, uh, the islands frequently have things like coastal artillery batteries uh, and airfields to help defend them. So the, 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 what, what was interesting about the strategic layer is that um, ideally it really forced you to think about whether you wanted to concentrate your forces uh, and so, and you have one big fleet uh, that could just about engage any challenger, or if you want to sort of parcel them out, like where do you want to spread out, right? Because like, a ship by itself is just going to get murdered. But if you have one ship sort of running around being a nuisance and taking undefended territories, you're going to force the enemy to either split apart to go chase that down, or you're going to, um, you know, slowly whittle down their economy uh, because their 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 mega fleet can only move one space. So that actually was a cool little dynamic. Uh, the, the main problem is that the AI doesn't figure it out very well, uh, and, which is really disappointing in a, in a really simple game like this, right? This is like something that an AI maybe should be able to figure out. There's not that many moving parts to this. Uh, but instead, what the AI tends to do in that game is um, it overproduces uh, like cheap ships. Uh, so it'll be throwing, like, mobs of destroyers at you, and it doesn't concentrate its forces or uh, store up money for things like cruisers, battleships, uh, aircraft carriers, which uh, are, are really just a completely different weight class uh, in this game, and their presence can can turn a battle by, by themselves. So... It, the, the, the campaign layer was interesting, and definitely uh, I was sort of hard-pressed for a little bit there as the AI uh, started spreading all over these territories and cutting my economy down to nothing. Uh, but slowly, sort of, my, my, my uh, stack of doom uh, fleets uh, started to turn the tide, and then I was able to spread out because there was nothing left to, uh, to, to, to cause me problems uh, sailing on the seas. So, yeah, um, I, I, I would say it's the campaign layer was interesting. I think it could have actually been quite good if the AI made a better showing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I only dabbled with it a bit, and it's mostly the skirmish, but I checked out the strategic layer, and I could have sworn I've played games that looked like this before. I don't think I played the first Battlefleet. This seems to be a very standard, simple intro war game Pacific-type idea. You just move your fleets around, and they have battles, and that's that. Um, and it, it's... I wondered, I mean, this is going to sound kind of heretical or weird. I wonder if they nerfed aircraft carriers, if aircraft carriers just aren't powerful enough for the Pacific War. Yeah, they, well, they did. I mean, like, the the aircraft carriers ended up playing a pretty critical role in my battle fleets because they're an unlimited range weapon. Um and so they're actually really good for whittling an enemy force down long before you engage. And that can actually be really important because some of these maps are huge. And so if you sort of go the wrong way with a cruiser or a battleship, that thing might never see combat. Uh, and, and so that ability to have the aircraft carrier's firepower uh, delivered at, on every turn, um, it's just like an RPG, right? Like just reliable uh, you know, damage per second, like every round, it's just it's just kicking out the damage, um, and they're surprisingly hardy. They're they're difficult to knock out. So, you know, they 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 end up playing a critical role, which is good, and and that definitely sort of keeps with the Pacific Theater campaign. But well, and this is one of those moments I wish I wish Bruce was here, right? Because the Pacific the, the Pacific campaign, for all that. The it, it sort of hinged on the on these massive carrier battles. There's a lot of like old school, early 20th century style, um, you know, dreadnought combat happening in the Pacific. Uh, that you know is is almost as consequential, really, as as some things like Coral Sea and such. So you know, for for all that the the it was a carrier naval war, uh, you know, battleships did end up playing this this really critical role. Uh, that you know maybe. Maybe there, maybe that's maybe it's it's easy to think that aircraft carriers should be the sort of be all and end all unit 
uh, in a game like this, mm-hmm. when really, even historically, they, they they weren't quite. Okay. Yeah, it's... I think when we talk a lot, I mean, not on the show, but off the show, about naval war games and just how awful uh, many of them are. Because they don't make, you know, the naval battles generally aren't necessarily that interesting. Um, the terrain very rarely matters. Uh, it comes down to technology. Uh, the matter what the era is, generally the tactic is the same. Just point the most guns, turn your hull, make sure you can get more of your turrets firing than the other guy can. Um, so it's this weird little dance of uh, mobility on an ocean. Um, and you know the interesting part of naval warfare is you know finding the other guy's fleet. That's what that's where naval war gets interesting. Yes. And can I find them before they find me and show up first just with the mostest? That's really what makes I think you know that's what makes you know harpoon stand out. That's what makes command naval uh, air command warfare sim command air war thing uh, stand out. That it's about you know detection. Um, and that's kind of cool. Um, th- this isn't a game about detection, about hunting, uh, but it is about you know making sure your boats are going in the right direction, as you say. You don't want to have your battleship start going north, and then if the enemy turns south, then you have to turn around this great big Cadillac of a car um, very, very slowly uh, in the right direction and hope that the enemy submarines or planes don't take you out. Uh, so I-, I guess part of it... One part of this game didn't really grab me, and I might go back to it based on your recommendation, is maybe my inherent bias against this type of a war game, because I don't think there is, I think the tactical stuff, this game really, really the meat of this, the way you talk, what I've seen, is these tactical battles. There's just not enough, you know, meat and variety in there for me, I guess, beyond this, you know, can I guess the range type arcade game. Yeah, and... You know, I think a, a simple game like this actually ends up unwittingly showing up some of the problems that do bedevil this this genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, I was surprised, like, what a decent ta- naval tactical game it was, because it doesn't take much to be a decent naval tactical game. Like, if you, you know, if you, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. well, you get your firing arcs in the, in the line, you get, you know, you cross the T, all right, you got, you got a naval war game. And... Even like I've played some, I've played some pretty serious ones. I've I've played um you know the Distant Gun series, yeah. uh, the 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 first of the Distant Gun series, um, which was about the uh, the Russo Japanese War, um, and even that, which was about as hardcore sim like as you could get, even that still kind of degenerated to these slugging matches between warships and sort of who can who can sort of get the better arc, and and once you. You know, it, a lot of times naval warfare can feel a little bit like foreordained once that initial engagement takes place, right? Like suddenly it's just geometry. Like, well, your angle of attack was wrong. They had the they had the they had the position, and so now you're going to be fighting at three quarters of the firepower you should have, and they're going to be firing with everything. So you're screwed. Um, and that's that's you know that's that's a hard thing to get around in, in naval war games unless you, you, you unless you get fairly fanciful and start introducing tons of things like um you know land masses and such to, to yeah. sort of maneuver around the way um. Uh, what was that thing the Paradox published last year? Leviathan. Yeah. Yeah. The way Leviathan hand- handles it, uh, which uh, w- was sort of, a, again, a, a fun little time waster in some ways. But like a lot of naval war games, it, it sort of pales uh, you know, over the long haul. I'll probably have to check this game out a little more maybe uh, later on today if I can't find hockey or a football game I want to watch. Um, well, now I'm nervous because now now you're gonna like now like you're gonna be playing it. And you're like, oh my god, Z- like Zachary, what was wrong with you? You must have been. I think <laughs> you must I, have been brain dead. I think that about Tom all the time. So you'll be in good company. So um, what's next on a? It's it's your turn to show and tell. Um, I guess the game that I picked up that I really the strategy game that I picked up in the last month that I really dug into quite a bit. It's a city builder. Uh, started on tablet and now it's come to Steam. And it's you know not really cheap. It's like ten bucks, eleven bucks. So it's not like your six dollar gem there. It's called eighteen forty nine. It is from a company uh, called Somasim, 
And they released it for iPad and I think Android uh, way back in the spring. And it's a game that I wanted to get into then, but it's just, you know, I don't really don't have time for really long-term games on my iPad. Um, you know, it's it's a fire-and-forget system, the iPad. You play your turn, and the other guy sends his turn, and send it back, and that's it. It's my, it's my commuting or my travel uh, gaming system. It's not something I play on regularly uh, beyond some card games. So I thought, no, I'll just pass on this. But I picked it up on Steam. Uh, it, the, the title 1849, you can tell it's set in uh, the Gold Rush in California, though they just released a Nevada expansion. So you can do book at Silver Mines uh, in Nevada. And it is, you can tell it's a tablet game. You can tell because it has, for a PC city builder, it has a lot of the problems that we talked about with Banished uh, early last year. There isn't a lot of, once you figure out the system, it's, there's only so much you can build and so much you can do, especially in the sandbox. You know, the sandbox maps, once you discover a gold and silver on your map, you can pretty much just, you're done. That's pretty much it. But the campaign challenges, uh, through the, the, it's a city builder like many traditional city builders, like Caesar, uh, like, you know, Pharaoh, like all the Great Impressions ones, where you move from location to location and you have to fulfill a quest, fulfill a task, and then you can move on to your next uh, posting. And they are really, really well done. Um, there's, to compare the sandbox to the story, there's a nice little feedback loop uh, in the game that can, is easily, easily exploited uh, in the sandbox game. Gold and silver, their prices are always really, really high, and the prices never change. But to mine them, you need pickaxes. And if you don't have iron on your map, you have to buy pickaxes. So you end up spending all this money, all, those, all the money you get from gold and silver, you sell that to San Francisco, and then you buy pickaxes from San Francisco so you can buy more gold and silver, so you can buy more pickaxes. It's, but if you have iron on your map, and silver or gold, then you're just off to the races. Nothing can stop you. You can buy whatever you want. You can throw down as many things as you want. You can buy all the finished supplies you need. It's great. In the story-based campaign, they work very hard to make sure you don't get a lot of iron or gold or silver on a lot of the campaign maps, that you don't have this killer combo, that there is a delicate balance of progress where you have to make sure your people are fed and there aren't a lot of ways to feed them. You have to set up hunting camps and hunting camps take up a lot of space and there's a limited amount of space on some of the maps to build. Or you uh, build a wheat farm and then a bakery but maybe you can't build a wheat farm in that location. You have to import the wheat to put that to your bakery. So you're spending money on all these imports. So it's actually a very challenging little economic game within the city builder. Uh, it is, because it's for, the, for, for Apple tablet, it's a very cleaned up 1849. It kind of feels more like a late 19th century Old West in its look than like mid 19th century. You know, there are sheriffs and there are county jails and all of these things that feel more Old West than... Uh, the gold rush, and you don't have, you know, people selling shovels or, you know, Chinese immigrants. You don't have all of those things that make the that if it was a born on PC city builder, you might have a little more of that historical flavor. But it's just enough historical flavor that I'm spending quite a bit of time playing it. I really like the sounds. I like the very simple art. I, I generally I prefer sandbox in city builders to the missions, but this is some really really interesting missions for a very simple uh, city builder. It is not super hardcore. This isn't, you know, this isn't a Clockwork Empires. This isn't a SimCity. Um, it's not a City Skylines. It's my promo. It's doing my job. Uh, it is very, very tablety. You can tell it's very tablety um, in just how not deep it is. But if I was to play this on tablet and buy it on tablet, I would have thought, wow, this is a lot of value for what I would have played. Because the stories, because the, all, all the maps are, they're quite different. Some of them have obstacles you need to clear, and it costs you money or pickaxes to clear these obstacles so you can build in that terrain. So it's a question of thinking in your head, where do these things go? Where Lumber gets turned in, you need lumber to improve your housing and the lumber gets inserted to boards, and that improves housing. Housing can deteriorate if things aren't supplied properly, if you don't have fabric, if you don't have bricks. Uh, there's this constant push of, it feels like an impressions game, where you want to keep your housing 
at a high tax rate. It's a very traditional city builder, and I kind of it made me remember how much I how much I loved those very traditional approaches to city building, where just get the houses improved, and that means more taxes. Um, so I I don't know who these Soma Sim guys and girls are, but I kind of want them to do a proper real city builder now. Uh, well, I do I do know the the, the Soma Sim guys. Uh, I met them at GDC actually last year. Okay. Uh, they're, they're they're fans of the show. Um, oh, and yay. yeah, I'm, I'm actually I was actually really glad you you brought this game up because it was something that I, I actually wanted to cover last year, and we had a nice chat at GDC, and I just never uh, my year just got insane uh, after the spring, and sort of the the esports work I do with Red Bull kind of uh, ended up taking up a lot more of my time, and I just never found the the opportunity to to dive into uh, 1849. So I, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. I will say uh, another reason I didn't get around to covering it is that. It did feel a little tablety for my taste. I, I think my my interest in city builders tends to run a little more towards the uh, simulation style at, at this point, mm-hmm. um, and it just. It, I, I think I was a bit turned off by sort of how how confined the the maps felt, uh, and, and sort of how small scale uh, the, the cities I was building building really felt. And I, I'm I'm curious, like. Did you, did you chafe against the restrictions, or is the design deep enough that uh, you know you didn't feel like, boy, I really wish I just had a little more surface area to expand. I wish there was a little more of a uh, sophisticated economy happening here. Yeah, I do wish there was more, especially space. I do wish that some of the maps were a little bit larger uh, than they are, especially the starter maps. But generally, they're just there to get you introduced to the economy, so it's not really a huge deal. Um, eventually, the maps do get bigger, but they're still not, you know, they're still not huge. These aren't the types of maps you'll be seeing on a pharaoh or a children of the Nile, or to mention, you know, some of the best uh, historical city builders that I've played. Uh, so I can understand why you might chafe, and that is, I mean, like I said, it's very much tablety like that. You don't want to have, you can't easily zoom out and zoom in on a tablet and track everything. Um, and even though it does feel confined, the zoom levels aren't fine-tuned enough that if something is happening outside your immediate view, you might not. I had log cabins or logging camps you know, burned down, and I had no idea they were even on fire because they were just off screen enough uh, with the very not subtle uh, zoom views for me to, not, to just not notice it. Um, so there is certainly a problem with viewing. Uh, both uh, just viewing and wanting a little more space in places. But I think it does a good job of making the city feel big by giving you uh, so many resources with which to improve your town that you can get a lot of citizens crammed in a very small, tight little area. It looks like a little bit of a slum in places. But there is there's a lot going on in this very small map. Uh, you're not, you're not going to be building you know, cities with hundreds of thousands of people here. These are, you know, mining camps. You'll have a few hundred. Um, but they will feel bigger because of the number of walkers walking around and the buildings uh, improving or degrading based on what's available. Mostly it's good with telling you that when a building is uh, declining by and what that it actually needs something uh, or which buildings are out of resources. I wish the economy, I could automate it a little bit more like there's no reason since the only reason for gold and silver is to make money i don't see why i have to go into the the, the trading menu to sell them why they don't just automatically get turned into money why do i have to you know go to san francisco and sell this stuff i mean i understand why you have to do that for boards or for wheat because those are multi-purpose things i might want some of those at home but gold and silver are just there for money so in that i wish that could be a little more automated um I wish the trading options were a little more could they could certainly be a little bit more sophisticated. It could be a very interesting little bit of a trading trading network. So the city's more like I have to import something from a city and then make it and then sell the finished goods somewhere else. Um, there's not a lot of that going on. Uh, it's generally quite clear based on the map you're given what you will be selling and what you will be buying. But that's how it was with Caesar 3 and 4 as well. So that's not necessarily a nice a, a deal breaker for me. It is, I mean, I don't want to give people the idea this is some great grand revelation of a strategy game. Beyond the fact that it is you know, so much better uh, than I thought it would be based on its looks, based on its, you know, 
tablet origins. There is some really tight game design here, and I can see how this would have been, I hope it was a hit on the iPad. I mean, you never really know uh, what is, qualifies on the iPad or what will work and what won't. So I hope they made their money back, uh, but it's certainly something I would recommend people checking out. Uh, if they're interested in city builders, absolutely. And if they're casually interested in city builders, if the price drops, it's certainly something you should pick up uh, in a sale. And the, the expansion just came out as a $3 expansion. Uh, it says $5, but now it's on sale 40% off for $2.69. You know, talking about some of these, these smaller games, I, I think in some ways those can bring you face-to-face with sort of core issues you might have with the genre. Yeah. And talking, like hearing you talk about how you can sort of hit sort of end states for, for these scenarios where, well, you got your... You know, you get your economy set up. You get you got you're pulling in the uh, silver and gold, and you're off to the races. You you, you can just kind of you, you can just kind of go on autopilot now. You, you basically won. Uh, I think something that I that I, I struggle with in city builders increasingly is that it does feel like these. I am finished with the scenario before really interesting stuff ends up happening. Like I think something yeah. that the impression city builders were always really good at was. Um, well, one, they kind of cheated, right? They fired torpedoes at you right and left uh, that, that you know you, you'd have to you'd have to adjust to. But another thing is that there were times when you had to make suddenly like radical changes to your layout. You had to, you had to radically like sort of revamp your city on the fly uh, without having the entire thing collapse in the meantime, right? This is a big yeah. part of the impressions games. Yeah. Is that okay? I've identified a huge problem in my city. I actually need to completely restructure this this like you know, this downtown area. But if I just clear cut it and start fresh, there's going to be huge disruption and my entire city is going to turn to, turn to crap because I did that. Uh, but I, I find that in, increasingly I just, there aren't many city builders that, that throw those curveballs at me that, that I, I'm always disappointed. I think when, when I reach a, when I reach sort of an end state with a, with a city builder scenario, uh, but before I really feel like I've had a, a, a an adequate city building challenge, you know, I don't I don't like feeling like it's always just sort of taking your city up the same ladder, you know, you know, climbing the same rungs up the same ladder to the same finished point, and then you're kind of done because the city kind of runs itself at that point. Yeah, and that's certainly an issue with a lot of city builders. I mean, it's um, okay, it has kind of. 1849 is kind of the, the banished problem in that once you've solved the food issue, the rest is pretty much just gravy. Um, once people aren't starving and leaving your city, then you're going to be doing okay. Um, and it's just about making sure you can meet all the mission goals from one step to the next. Banished doesn't have missions, so it's not a problem. In this game, you at least have missions. And then in-game, you, you know, you can get the mayor of some other town will have, please send me boards and lumber, and then I will send you a reward. Just like, you know, the Emperor would in the Caesar games. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, you don't really have um, the pressure to, you know, tear things down and rebuild things because it is a tablet city builder. There isn't a lot of issues with how far am I from the supply chain, for example. Things you would find uh, important in some uh, city building games. They don't have, they don't have to... The where, there is a warehouse, but the warehouse just seems to teleport things. Uh, to where they need to be. Uh, so that's really not a huge uh, problem where is my, are, am I building the businesses in the right place? You need to build, yeah, the, the churches have area of effect and sheriffs have area of effect. And these are things you need to pay attention to for your residences, but they're not expensive to build. You can stick them in the middle of a logging camp and it's not going to be a huge deal. It is a very, it's a very simple strategy. It's a very simple city builder. Um, but it does harken back in many ways to the things I liked about the Impressions games. I mean, I never liked the idea of, you know, gutting my city because I realized, you know, two hours in, crap, I built this wrong. Because that just reminded me that the Impressions games were were, were, were math problems hmm. with uh, a city planning yeah. vibe. You know, oh, I'm sorry, you built two tiles too far away from the fishing zone. You will not complete this scenario. Or you can't you can't get your buildings to the highest le- evolution level because your temple is next to a sewage plant or what have you. You know these whole 
these problems with walkers and math and timing that always bothered me with the impressions builders. And when I had to go to city, that just reminded me that made all the math too real. It was like, you know, it was like seeing through the matrix, you know, Oh my God, it's all a lie. I'm just doing long division. And you don't have that in the simpler city builders. It just appeals to it. It's a comforting lie. It reminds me how much I love the, I love the color. I love the historical painting of running a city in era that I kind of know a little bit about. And there's gold in them, there are hills, and just throwing in all the color like, like that. And, you know, making the game what makes what a city builder is supposed to be about. It's about can't, how quickly can I get this city to where it's healthy and thriving and not thriving so much that I can't deal with all of the immigrants coming in. You want to make it pretty, but not too pretty. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, it's, a, it's a game that I recommend that I've had a lot of fun playing. That I'm going to, I guess, kind of like Battlefleet. I'm going to say not everybody's going to like this. Uh, a lot of people are going to find it way too shallow. Um, and they're going to look at its tablet roots and see that as an insult. Whereas I see it as, wow, I wish I'd played this on tablet. So this is this is a bit of a bit of old business because mm-hmm. uh, one of the other games I ended up spending a, a lot of time on over the break uh, is something we talked about for the last winter of wargaming and uh, I was not able to be a part of that show. Some stuff came up and uh, you and Bruce covered it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's uh, Flashpoint Campaign's Red Storm. So good. It is a fascinating game, and un- unfortunately, it, it doesn't. It breaks from the theme a little bit here. This is not a this is not a game you're going to find for like you know five bucks on Steam during any Steam sale. Like it's still it's still Matrix price, but for Matrix prices, it's like thirty dollars. So you're, you're doing really well. Uh, but that said, uh, setting that aside. Um, it's a really cool game. It is. It, it really is like the 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 hardcore war. In a lot of ways, it feels like the hardcore war game version of War Game Airland Battle. Um, yeah, and I kind of adore that. It is. A, we talk about you know starter intro war games. This is a hardcore bit of simulation with some really neat stuff going on. Well, you know, the accessibility question with a game like this becomes really interesting because yeah. actually. What you have to do, your role is kind of simple, and the way Commander's role can sometimes be kind of mm-hmm. simple, right? Like, you tell units where to go, and you give them sort of their 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 rules of engagement, how they're going to handle things. Um, and, and then things sort of sort of play out in a, a WeGo system, a simultaneous resolution. Um, so, you know, learning to play it is not that difficult. Learning to understand what the hell is going on and why the orders you're giving need to be the correct ones, right. uh, that that's a lot more nuanced. And a, a big part of this is, um, well, I, I, I sort of got, I, I sort of got, um, I wouldn't say, I'm not stuck on it, but one thing that struck me mm-hmm. is that a lot of games, maybe from like, mm, say, 18th century warfare, you know, even earlier, like, you know, going from, like, uh, Pike and Shot era uh, all the way up to maybe even a a good portion of World War II feels very um, positional to Mm -hmm. me. It feels very much about, like, you find the terrain, you you fix them, you flank them, you you blast them to hell. Uh, And and that's the way a, a lot of these games tend to play out. It's about sort of finding... Uh, the advantageous positions and, and holding them if you can. Flashpoint campaigns is very much buying into this idea that Cold War combat would have been so volatile, that the weapon systems were so advanced and so good at picking out even entrenched um, units that really the idea of holding territory is kind of outmoded. Uh, that it, it's really about extracting a butcher's bell uh, over a running fight. Uh, that will eventually lead you to victory. The enemy will break off their attack before they achieve their objectives, or or they will get bogged down somewhere uh, before before they before they get into uh, get to the objectives. But it's not really about you know funneling people into like one good like kill zone and just you know racking up the kills and then they fall apart. You know the way like a civil war battlefield, a civil war war game can often be about well, you know you you had you held the hill, uh, you had the artillery in a decent like defilade uh, in a decent like enfilading position and uh you know that was game you know you just sort of sat there and mowed them down here if, if you start thinking too much in those terms of all right this this seems like a good defensive line i'm gonna hold it uh you'll be holding it right up until you just get run over yeah 
It is what I really loved about it. I'm glad you're discovering it uh, is, I mean, you said this is a game that's easy to learn how to play. But I find it's hard, it's hard to learn how to unplay, to know when not to do anything, mm. when to let the orders you've given carry out and not just start mucking around with things. I mean, in some ways, it's a bit like, you know, ultimate General Gettysburg in that sometimes the best thing to do is leave your troops alone. Yes. But it's for very different reasons. You know, in Gettysburg, it's because you want to let your guys have a rest to not disturb their morale to make sure they're not feeling stressed so that they can fight when you need them to fight instead of just pointing them in a new direction, chasing uh, routing rebels. In Flashpoint, it's about you there's a this is electronic warfare component. There's just too many signals coming out and you don't want to this is important to the Soviets especially because their doctrine is a lot more rigid, is you can't give too many confusing, conflicting, changing orders, because then you get chaos, and then you get nothing at all. Then you get this stalemate. So there's this, there's always this urge to, I see a threat, I need to respond to that threat now in war games. And when they're turn-based, that makes a lot of sense. But in real-time games, and I'm glad we're seeing this more uh, in a couple of games, we saw this in a couple of games this year, the reminder that not everything is a crisis Make a plan and stick with it, and then see how the plan evolves. Uh, not everything requires throwing the plan out. And I really like uh, that component of you know, communications and command uh, in the Flashpoint games. Yeah, and it, it's a thing that teaches you, you have to be more accepting of, of losses, because there are times that you are better off leaving units to die in a position uh, rather than trying to extract them because if you try to extract them they will still get slaughtered but they'll get slaughtered in the open without you know inflicting any kind of damage and so there are a lot of times where you realize like you slipped up you left those guys just a few minutes too long and now the enemy's in their face and you're not going to get them out and actually you just have to tell them to stand and stand and fight and hope for the best because yeah, they, there is there is an inertia to the to to these units. The units themselves can be very fast. They can be very zippy, but getting units in motion, getting the orders down through the chain of command, these things can take time, and it's time you 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 frequently don't have. And I I really I, I am really intrigued by sort of the um. It's not really turn based. You know, it's it's kind of a continuous time game where each army gets to issue new orders at given intervals based on a combination of their doctrine and um, current readiness and uh, the integrity of their of their communications and chain of command. Uh, and so you get these, these, this really weird. Um, this, it gives this really unusual feel in that you know at the start of a battle the 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 intervals between turns so, so to speak the intervals between command mm-hmm. phases um are only like 20 minutes and like if if you're a pretty well positioned nato force like 20 minutes is about you know average it's good it's a good turnaround time uh whereas the soviets you're frequently dealing with yes a a much longer turnaround time and you end up you end up playing tr- the sides very differently too right yeah. like the soviets tend you you tend to have a more blunt force approach because once you send those guys out they got to figure things out for themselves for about 40 minutes and then you will tell them the next you know, round of things they need to do, but um, and even then they'll be slow to react to it. Uh, whereas NATO can be a little, a little, little zippier, but it, it gives it this weird, this weird feel too, where you also also have to start anticipating the degradation of your uh, of your ability to command, right? Like as as the as the fighting intensifies and HQ units get overwhelmed or engaged in combat, and uh, you know communications begin to break down unit readiness declines you know suddenly when you you know a battle that you were able to sort of almost micromanage at the start just starts turning into this you know the, this this you know maneuver warfare donny brook uh where now you have to really think about you know you like like you said you know you're not going to do much you're going to give a couple simple orders now because if you try to if you try to like change everything once you're going to screw it all up. And so a big part of this game just turns into seeing how things play out and trying to sort of anticipate what's, you know, what you're actually going to be able to get done in this next like 40 minute period. 
it's I mean it's great you mentioned that the Soviets are this blunt force weapon and because of the friction of the battlefield halfway through the battle you know all NATO's time for finesse is gone I mean their time for fancy move maneuvers is in the first few turns uh, then after that you know the chaos of the battlefield and just ordinary communications friction like I said you can only give at that point often very simple instructions um, because there's not a lot that complicated, intricate maneuver can do at that point and still be successful. Um, so, you know, the Soviets get like one good hard crack uh, at the nut generally to begin with and try to, to try to break through. And NATO gets their chance to do some funny flanking and mobility stuff and neat things with uh, air power at the very beginning. And then after that, they end up doing just as much slugging. Uh, so it's really a nice commentary on, well, I think what the designers expect, you know, modern warfare to actually look like between relatively equal armies, something we don't see in the real world much anymore. Yeah, it, it did make me, it left me wondering a little bit, is this a system, and I, I actually don't know much about the Flashpoint campaigns series. Is, is it a, is, are there a lot of other games in that series? I think this is the second one, maybe the third I'm just looking that up real quick because it feels like the system should have more games in it. Uh, all it's turning up, actually, is Redstorm. Okay. Uh, but it, it, it got me sort of wondering whether we shouldn't be seeing more games... Like, whether this is a system that shouldn't be used more for, like, games like, you know, certain campaigns in World War II, right? Because right. something that is very hard to bring out is that... Really, maneuver warfare, the, the arrival of maneuver warfare and, and the doctrines attending it, um, make outmoded a lot of, the, um, a, a lot of the, the positional warfare I was talking about earlier, right? right? Uh, but our, our, a lot of war games are still designed as if, you know, as we talked about on the, um, you know, the Magic Hills and Body Count show, a lot of war games are still designed uh, as if, you know, you control the, you, you control the special, you know, the, the Magic Hill yeah. and, and, you, and you'll win. Uh, if you get your units into the good ground, uh, you know, just like Buford of Gettysburg, no matter what the war, you find the, you, you find the high ground yeah. and you just, you just murder everyone. You're gonna, and that's how you win. That's, that's, how you, that's how you command. And a game like this, I, I kind of wonder if it isn't, Maybe even a little more broadly applicable to to certain like to a lot of twentieth century warfare, where you do have these units now operating with increasing degrees of autonomy. Uh, commanders are you know at once have a greater ability to communicate with with armies in the field, uh -huh. but are also dealing with events that are unfolding uh, much faster, and the deadliness of the battlefield is 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 increasing drastically and uh, playing it I'm, I, I it's obviously a system that's brilliantly suited to um to something like a a hypothetical 19 you know late 80s conflict between uh the the, the Soviet Union uh, the Warsaw Pact and uh, NATO but it also got me thinking about you know things like the you know the fall of France and uh, you know operations uh, you know in Russia where you know, it, it's not really about commanding the magic hill at the end of the battle. It's it's about, you know, destroy. It's about outmaneuvering and sort of destroying the enemy and and, and getting past them. I mean, the, 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 this would be great, great, great for our Suez War, for example, mm -hmm. or about nineteen seventy three uh, war. Um, something a lot of the Arab Israeli conflict. We have the same sort of issues where you have highly trained uh, professional army versus what were in effect, you know, Soviet doctrine tank people banging into each other, but with, you know, very different terrains, very different timelines. I mean, speed is really, really important for both sides. Um, so, yeah, something like that, or India-Pakistan, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of scenarios where this sort of um, system would prove very valuable. And I think, yeah, I, I, it would have to be ch changed quite a bit, I would think, when you get to, like, to like the early radio area era of uh, the 30s and 40s, but there's no reason it couldn't be adapted to that. And I think we should see something, you know, a little bit more emphasis on the problems of communications. Uh, something we talk about on 
quite a few war game shows. I mean, how often have we mentioned couriers and civil war battles and Napoleonic mm-hmm. battles? It's something that I think we both find you know kind of interesting. Um, but and I think the problems of friction on the battlefield, which we see through you know matters of erosion and timing in war in the east, and here we see it in you know. Uh, like you say, you people have to make their stand where they make their stand and just try to inflict as much damage as they can because it's a battle of hardware and not over commanding the strategic territories because you can always go over strategic territories now. Yeah. I'll tell you, it made me appreciate the War Game series more as well as I was playing because I was, I was struck how often I was sort of able to intuit what was going to happen in this game because I played so much of of War Game Airland Battle. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, I'm going to leave these, you know, these um, APCs with the uh, anti tank guided missiles uh, in this tree line, and that should that should that should give this uh, armored column a bloody nose. And sure enough, you know, the the ATGMs fire off, and you know, suddenly you have like six burning T-72s. Um, you know, it, it was it was a game that was very easy to sort of relate to in, in uh, war game airland battle and Red Dragon terms. Uh, but obviously, it's it's less uh, rock paper scissors uh, than that game. You know, yeah. like where 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 war game very much takes the takes the view that like look, the anti tank missile is a game-changing technology that trumps the tank in a lot of ways um you know in 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 red storm you're going to find they still miss a lot those you know they're really difficult to land uh you know when when you're taking incoming fire and war game gets that across too but again this is just a little bit uh the counters are a little bit less hard because this is fundamentally more of a war game you know there's more variables in place it's going to be less about reliable interactions between different classes of units uh but yeah i've been i've been enjoying that just just so 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 much um maybe hopefully this this uh this winter of war gaming now this is just off the top of my head i can't promise anything about it but you know we've been putting off a command ops show for so long um and that too has this sort of interest in chain of command and uh you know order delay that it might be a good uh companion piece to to go with like last year's discussion of um of, of flashpoint campaigns maybe we can take take a look at something in the command ops uh series yeah. but that obviously that's to be determined in, in the next few weeks we do have some stuff uh lined up for the uh for the early part of the winter war gaming which should be kicking off in a couple weeks yeah uh we're just about out of time here uh first Troy, is there any are there any last games you want to talk about that you were enjoying perhaps a bit over the break or uh did were you mostly playing the uh, going slowly mad in uh new brunswick game i was you know i didn't play a lot of uh new games in new brunswick i played a lot of the uh ancient uh, the hunted cows ancient war games stuff and i didn't like them very much so i won't say much about them beyond yeah it's they have scenarios and there are lots of Ouch. them Ouch. Wait, I don't, what series is this? This is Hunted Cow. They are, make quite a few uh, tablet uh, war games. They did a Civil War games. They have one in the Revolutionary War. And they have um, four ancient battles uh, sets. Uh, Rome, um, Carthage, Alexander, and the successors. Uh, where you start with one intro campaign, and then you just buy the rest of the campaigns um, in, in, in that purchase. You... You play through the Civil War, um, starting in uh, Caesar's Battle in Spain, and then you end up uh, fighting in it. I think it's right ends at Munda, I think. Um, so those are that's one of the Roman scenarios. Yeah. Uh, so it's just standard, but it but we could talk. About, I could spend forever talking what it gets you know wrong about ancient war, but it's just meant to be a distraction. Uh, game or anything else. It's not meant, it's not trying to say anything about ancient war besides we've looked at other people's maps and now we've done this in our system. And uh, their system which repeats a lot of stuff from their Civil War system. And if you can just copy yeah. and paste from a Civil War system into an ancient system, then you're kind of missing something. Yeah. So that was a game I didn't play. I played a lot of, but I didn't want to say a whole lot about beyond without, you know, taking over and just ranting forever about war game design. Um, but really, the last couple of months, I've been playing a lot of roguelikes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, d- d- Dungeon Man's is eating up my time. That's kind of my new favorite little roguelike, because when your character dies, any information he or she brings back to the academy where they start, the new character gets to start with. 
and they can start with better equipment. Um, if there's legendary equipment left in the vault, they can pick up that and get a head start. Uh, and so they move along faster. So you don't. So it doesn't feel like you're treading water with a level one character in the same dungeons all the time. You're level one, but you're effectively like level eight because you've got level eight equipment. Um, so you can get through all that stuff really fast and then get back to where you were. So it's still a roguelike, but it's saying we getting rid of all the things people hate about roguelikes, which is the oh, I got to do this crap again. Yeah. And also, you know, sort the, the I mean, survival games are the new hotness this year. You know, Neo Scavenger. I mean, Don't Starve was last year, but it's st- yeah. it's still good this year. I actually had a request from a from a listener uh, on Twitter that mm-hmm. we, we should take a look at survival games uh, as and I, I you know this is maybe something to look at maybe in the spring or, yeah. or summer as a topic show because definitely you know when we did this War of Mine the, you know a lot of survival games fundamentally are about resource management which is the essence of a lot of strategy games yeah. and uh, as we talked about during the the, the year end show uh, increasingly you're getting uh, you're you're getting strategy game sort of employing these uh these survival concepts i I don't remember rowan's uh lovely turn of phrase uh but but i i i vaguely recall he had a he had a nice uh you know portmanteau for for this class of strategy game but it's definitely something we're i think we're seeing crop up more and more now in strategy and it might be something to uh to take a look at so many now we have i mean neo scavengers just a pain in the ass but we have long dark we have, you know, all of the the online survival games, uh, which are just griefing centers. Uh, but yeah, there is something about this. I mean, and and uh, also, uh, sir, we are being hunted. Sir, you are being mm-hmm. hunted, which I think is probably one of the best uh, survival games uh, of the year. And it's they all, they do have this resource management. They have this uh, bit of roguelike to them. Oh, I figured this out, so I won't make that mistake next time. Um, they're they're prone to wikification, which is something I'm kind of against in games, but but it makes it easier for you to find out what you're supposed to be doing. Um, so I really think it is something we should probably devote uh, a show to sometime in the spring. Well, yeah, and especially if you're going to say that about Sir, you were being hunted, which I quite liked, but it seemed to sort of come and go and did not like it was not a game that I think uh, picked up a passionate following the way a lot of uh, survival type games have. Now, obviously, part of that is is probably a lot of survival games are sort of also also massively multiplayer, and yeah. as you said, they they have the sort of cottage industry of uh, you know let's plays and Twitch streams uh, showing basically um, you know all kinds of good old fashioned sociopathic behavior, <laughs> yes. uh, which was a lot more charming before this summer uh but um you know definitely i I, sir you were being hunted kind of boils things down uh in in some ways i'm I'm surprised i I enjoyed it but i'm surprised to hear you sort of cite it as a a favorite of the uh, forum i'll say it's a favorite because it is different in that it has a clear objective whereas most of these survivor survival games it's just you survive that's your job the threat is everything and that's that whereas sir you're being hunted the threat is you are being hunted so there's clarity and objective. There's clarity of purpose. So the game is designed around that purpose instead of like Neo Scavenger, which a lot of my friends really like. But for me, it's just a reminder that, oh, crap, I forgot to put on shoes. Because, hey, you can die through stuff you get through your feet. And it's just a reminder of a thousand ways. Everything can kill you, which some people really like. And a lot of these games push in that direction. You know, Don't Starve is in that direction. Long Dark is you know about the winter and how how quickly you die of hypothermia, these sorts of things. Whereas Sir, You Are Being Hunted, I think I really like it, um, and we can talk about this more when we do a show on it, is because I think the focus lends it to makes it a better design and a tighter design. And it's not, here's a bunch of crap, what can you make out of it? Which turns into this crafting, because the game becomes this large crafting puzzle mm-hmm. instead of can I survive? Yes. No, I, I, I definitely yes, the, the, the structure in that game is is definitely a, a a point in its favor. I think the there is well, there's an entire discussion to be had about sandboxes and yep. why I'm getting a little bit tired of them. Uh but that's that's a discussion for another day. But yes, I do find I, that a I little... want to, I want to have that discussion so <laughs> Okay, so basically okay, so we're gonna have the Winter of War game and then what, the Summer of Rage or the Days of Rage? Oh yes. Um but yeah, because there's 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 
There's a lot of sandbox games out there, and I think sandboxes can be fun, but a little bit more structure at times can can also be good. Uh, but that's uh, that's that's a huge topic, as big as the sandbox uh, conceit in itself. In itself, for as long as it's this huge, large, continual underground, overground bullshit of what a game is and is not, I can make a better case that Gone Home is a game than I can that a sandbox is a game. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. That's uh, okay. There's, we're we're I'm, I'm we're burning like, cast, I'm, I'm as they say. Throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. That's a, that's an interesting discussion, but it's it's one we should not have today. No, um, we but should, we, we we probably shouldn't have it ever. But well, yeah. But <laughs> we're going to. It'll it'll we, happen. We, we will talk about sandboxes. Uh, yeah, so I, I think at some point we should also take a look, because I definitely uh, nabbed some other cheap games that I'm definitely excited to be taking a look at that we've never gotten around talking about. Like, you know, I've heard great things about the Perimeter series uh, as kind of an odd Russian RTS. Um, you know, I, I've also heard that the Panzer Elite games are actually really brilliant World War II games, so I never got around to playing them. Uh, so in the, in the coming months, I'll sort of be delving through uh, my, my my holiday treasures, and uh, perhaps we'll we'll talk about some 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 truly old games uh, at some point, just to just to appreciate what other offerings are out there on Steam. Uh, but for today uh, i think we'll leave it there that was a surprisingly uh, in-depth discussion of of a lot of core genre <laughs> issues uh for for Just a post-holiday show look at that look at that we can we, we can do this man you think we're experts or something yeah it's it's almost as if right amazing all right, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, a- another show, and then a couple weeks we're going to have the winter of wargaming, so uh, don't touch that virtual dial. And uh, as always, my thanks to uh, our producer, Michael Hermes, for cutting this uh, episode together. And uh, my thanks to you for listening, and hopefully we all have a fantastic and strategy-filled uh, 2015. Uh, happy holidays, everybody, and until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night. Goodbye, all.